0: Hey, I'm R. Alan Brooks, a writer and professor. This is How Art is Born, an MCA Denver podcast about the origins of artists and their creative and artistic practice. Today, I'm joined by artist Laura Schill. Say hi.
1: Hi.
0: That's how they know the difference between our voices. Laura, <laughs> <laughs> right, to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: I am an interdisciplinary artist who is living and working here in Denver.
0: All right, Alan. Okay, so... Where are you from? Where'd you grow up?
1: Um, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. And I moved out here to pursue a master's degree in mm. fine arts at the University of Colorado in Boulder okay. in 2009. Nice. And then I just stayed. Yeah. I was really embraced by this community and mm. opportunities opened up for me that I never thought would be possible.
0: Yeah.
1: And I just mm. I got to stay.
0: Okay, so let me ask you this. So uh, when you were a child in um, in South, how did you first connect with art?
1: Um, I think photography was really the gateway yeah. for me. I just, I didn't know any artists. Mm. It didn't seem like a thing that normal people did. Mm. Um, but when I was nine years old, my grandfather gave me my first camera
2: huh.
1: and you know, I was a little bit of an outside observer, even within my family. Right. So I think he, you know, maybe noticed that and said, well, <laughs> let's put you to work. You can, <laughs> you can document, you can observe. Um,
0: so what, what kind of camera was it?
1: Uh, it was hot pink. <laughs>
0: nice. And it took
1: this like really small film format. It was like a really horizontal, narrow. I mean, it, it wasn't a great camera. It was, yeah. it, it was a snap, a point and shoot kind okay. of camera but it kind of gave a purpose to that like outsider position that I had. And then I went on to study journalism Hmm. and became a photojournalist in college. Wow. You know, was like the photo editor of our university newspaper. Hmm. And that kind of, you know, having that outsider status, but having an entry point in um, was was kind of how it all
0: started for me. Well, so uh, I want to run it back a little. So when when you got that camera, what kind of things were you taking pictures of? (laughs)
1: Mostly it was my family. Yeah. And honestly, I probably used it more as a weapon. You uh, know, I was like, kind of expose, like, here's the <laughs> seedy underbelly of the birthday party,
2: <laughs> kind of thing.
1: And it, it took me a long time to figure out, and I had to have good mentorship for this to figure out how to be um, a good photographer and also a good person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and ultimately, I think that's why I didn't stick with photojournalism, was mm-hmm. because I really did. Um, Sometimes I would feel monstrous, the images that I was making.
2: Um,
1: I would rather intervene or allow people to have more authorship of their own representation than to try and hide behind ideas of impartiality. Hmm. And so that was really kind of what opened the door for this more like collaborative way of art making.
0: Well, Laura, that's really interesting. So are, are you, I mean, what's interesting is having the dual journey of developing as an artist, but also developing as a person, a good person, like you said. So um, just, I guess, so that I understand, is it, did you feel like you were capturing people in photography just in ways that were unfair or unflattering or?
1: Well, you know, as a young photographer, I think I probably, I was trying to repeat images I'd seen before. Hmm. In a way, you know, it's like you learn by copying or like, okay, I got to get the spot news. So I need to be on the scene for this bad thing that's happened to someone Mm -hmm. or so it was, yeah, it it really was like, I would be capturing people in a really dire moment in their Mm -hmm. lives and not really able to ask how that's impacting them. Like, for instance, I showed up to a fire Mm -hmm. in a rural part of Alabama, um where a woman and her son, he was 62, she was 82, it had gotten so hot that summer that some ammunition they had stored in their garage had caught fire wow. and just burned up everything that they owned. Mm-hmm. Um everybody's standing outside, all the neighbors, you know.
2: Yeah.
1: It's hot Alabama summer day. And it, it looks like how it looks like the stereotype in
2: a way. Mm.
1: And I come in with my like, camera blazing
2: right.
1: um, with maybe little regard for the dignity of those people. Mm. You know, the question of like, what does this image serve? Mm. Um, who, who's it helping?
2: Right.
1: Um, was one of those things that just kind of, it was almost a decisive moment for me where I was like, wow. oh, I'm not going to be good at this because I can't intrude on these people suffering like this. Right. And then what, make it public? Like, who is that serving? Yeah. And so, you know, I went on to, you know, my favorite form of photography became the environmental portrait where it's like this collaboration between you and another person. And you're trying to, in image form, let them tell you who they are. Huh. And so it became a thing where I wouldn't even get the camera out until I'd spent time,
2: wow.
1: like talking to somebody and getting to know them and kind of understanding what's important to them. <laughs> um
0: I love hearing about that whole journey. Like, that's really interesting. So you get your first camera nine, you go through uh, high school and kind of stick with it. Like it was the camera kind of present all of those years or just came no. and went?
1: No, yeah. it really wasn't. Um, you know, I took art photography in high school. But okay. in high school, I was you know, was an athlete. I oh. was trying to be like an academic high achiever. Mm. I w-
0: so you found your way back to photography in college. That's when you mm-hmm. focused on it. Uh, so how, how was that like, did you immediately think it was going to be like journalistic photography or were you just kind of open?
1: You know, I think it was like a career that I could name, uh, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I really did kind of, you know, come from sort of working class parents. My mm. my mom did go to college, but it was like when I was a child, okay. she went back to school. Mm. Um, and so I really wanted to, prove that I could earn a living mm. at it before I would even name it. Okay. And so I started, you know, as photo editor, I suit a paper. Yeah. And then I was like freelancing for the alternative paper in town. Mm. And in exchange, they would let me in to see shows for free at this bar that they also owned. Huh, and, nice. um, and then, you know, I had a fine art photography practice going alongside. And okay. so I kind of created this digital divide where, the stuff I was doing for money, I was doing digitally, and then I was still keeping a film practice alive.
0: Okay. And so that moment that you had where um, you felt like you didn't want to exploit people in their most vulnerable moments, uh, was that before you got the MFA here?
1: Yes. Okay. Um, And I should say that there are photojournalists who do their jobs beautifully Mm. and don't exploit people and just Mm. show us humanity and that's what I wanted to do. And I just didn't feel like I could do it in that form.
2: Okay.
1: Um, so I worked professionally as a photographer and I had this fine art practice going on the side and I was um, organizing art shows with my friends in um, like friends' studios or their backyards yeah. or like an old synagogue that didn't have plumbing okay. and, you okay. know, an ice house in Kentucky um, or this like all ages punk rock venue in yeah. Birmingham. And so, you know, that was kind of where I found my place and like, was just like building this community. We would just kind of have these temporary one night shows, yeah. people would come and it would be like, Oh, there, there's more of us than we thought.
0: Okay. There. well, So when you're doing those shows and kind of connecting with the alternative community, was that the photography that you're talking about where uh, you're getting the environmental Uh, So
1: yeah, I'm doing, I'm showing environmental portraits of my friends who are like other artists and musicians or just weirdos. Um, And then I'm also doing this like experimental kind of stuff where I'm teaching myself different processes and my weird, like kind of Southern Gothic stuff that was sort of just a rebellion of the place that I lived in and how confined I felt there. And so a lot of that work, early creative work for me um, was directly in response to growing up in a culture that I felt like didn't see me and didn't want me to exist. Mm. And so it was, it was really a practice of going out into spaces and getting comfortable with my embarrassing ideas mm. and being weird and letting people see that and getting over that fear.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so like my work now, it does not resemble that work mm. in any way because it was very sort of confrontational mm-hmm. Um, and very much sort of a backlash to feeling to feeling like there there wasn't a place for me.
0: Right. Well, it's interesting that you talk about that stuff, because uh, a lot of these conversations we, we talk about basically what your art means for you, what place it occupies in your life. Like uh, for some of us, it's a way to heal ourselves. For some of us, it's a way to have our voice heard. Um, so at that point in your life. It seems like it was about kind of finding your place. Is that, would you say that was right?
1: Yeah, like carving out a space for other weirdos. Uh, yeah. You know, shining this light that mm. says, hey, there's others of us over here. Like, right. you all are welcome.
0: Um, well, so uh, now, because you said this stuff then is very different from what you do now. So, um, what is art doing for you now?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, You know, so in the past it's, you know, I'll create these elaborate scenarios that sort of draw people in. Mm -hmm. And I've often joked that my art is like a great way for me to lure people into a friendship with me. (laughs) Um, But it's become more complicated since the pandemic because all of our worlds have gotten smaller Mm and we've had to create distance from each other. So, you know, it's been a way of, Processing things for me throughout that experience, but it's also just kind of my way of engaging my curiosity with the world, mm. um, and just kind of following a question wherever it leads. And if I need to learn a new skill set to like properly engage it, then that's what I'll do.
0: Okay. Yeah, it seems like uh, people have always been central to your photography practice. Is yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Nice. <laughs>
1: although I did, I did spend about a year working with um, a natural history collection huh. at the University of Alabama, where I would go in every Friday and document like every, well, it started with every endangered or extinct species that they had in their collection, mm-hmm. but then it became like much more a project where I was interested in the motivation of the collector themselves. Yeah. So like even in this roundabout way uh-huh. where I'm photographing dead animals, I'm still trying to get to the humanity uh-huh. and like the impulse behind collecting in the way that we like want to impose order on things or keep things together, even if like decay is the natural state of things. Mm. Um, so yeah.
0: No, it's interesting because I I talk about the idea of how art is, um, very good at taking the intangible and making it into something tangible that we can wrestle with, think about whatever. And it seems like what you're describing is being interested in, what motivates a person or what makes them who they are and then trying to represent that visually. And, uh, I don't know. That's just a really kind of cool thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think too, I'm just, I'm a pretty introverted person. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always trying to use my practice to create some system that can promote some social, thing happening, whether it's, you know, in the way a work is produced that I need help. And so, um, so people will show up and help me or whether it's like this environment that I create that I can then invite people into, um, or whether it's just having to ask somebody, Mm. can I make your portrait or, um, that I'm, I'm always trying to like build these ways into my life that, um, will draw people in Mm. or draw me to other people.
0: Yeah. Okay, so uh, the degree that you got at CU Boulder, mm-hmm. um, how did that affect your practice?
1: Well, the main way that it, you know, I, it was just kind of my way out. Mm. I, I didn't really know how to leave the leave Alabama because yeah. I spent my entire life there without having a place to go, and so um, I chose CU Boulder because they had just built this brand new building. Mm. And so it felt like I would be arriving in a time where I could help build something oh. like help be part of the start of something new
2: mm-hmm.
1: so when I got there you know having worked for a few years I was a pr- I was a really motivated student I didn't need a lot of instruction mm-hmm. um, they have phenomenal resources mm-hmm. and so I just was able to get in there and start experimenting mm-hmm. um, and I should say too that um, before I quit my job and moved to um, see, Boulder, I had seen this, like, commercial um, for an HP product, like okay. a printer, where a three-year-old takes a digital camera, photographs her goldfish, oh. takes that image, downloads it to a computer, and then prints it out. And hmm. it's like, this three-year-old just did my job. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> how can how can I compete? And so I said, well, I guess I'll... I'd like to take it back to the beginning and learn the earliest photographic form, the one that democratized photography in the US and I think like completely upended our society. Oh. Um, and so I decided to learn how to make 10 types wow. with the wet plate collodion process. So I wrote a letter
2: hmm.
1: to this man in upstate New York, um, John Coffer, who lives like a 19th century lifestyle. Hmm. He like, lives off the land and he teaches this photographic process oh. and so he responded to my letter so I could come and I drove up to New York to learn wet plate collodion because that's what I wanted my research to center on when I got to see wow. Boulder so okay uh,
0: before we go further I know <laughs> what ten types are yeah but I don't know what the word you're saying with type plate collodion. Plate,
1: collodion.
0: plate collodion.
1: Yeah, that just it it describes the materiality and the way that it's made. Hmm. So like a tin type is a metal plate. Mm-hmm. Should be tin, but now a lot of times it's aluminum with like a black surface on okay. it. And um you pour collodion which is this like syrupy material that smells like rubbing alcohol mm-hmm. and it was actually used in the civil war to like close soldiers wounds it wow. behaved as like a second skin and that's kind of what it does on the plate too huh. so then you dunk the plate into the silver nitrate which is the light sensitive material yeah. and the collodion holds it on there so it's wet the wow. whole thing happens in your hand it's wet it's alive you're moving it around And then in order to fix that image permanently, dunk it in cyanide, Hmm. which I think just speaks volumes about photography
0: (laughs) Um, and the the image itself. Yeah. I was just I'm (laughs) glad you explained that because. Oh, yeah. Superhero and like Nickelodeon, like the commercial for when I was a kid. Nickelodeon.
2: Yeah. That's
0: not what she's saying.
1: Sorry to get jargony. (laughs) No, no, no.
0: It's good because it's a good chance to kind of learn more about that kind of stuff. So you went. And this guy taught you about this process.
1: Yeah. And how long was that? So I spent a week on his farm and you like stay in a tent and you, there's a cauldron for bathing and, you know, the composting toilet and uh, you drink milk from his cow. Wow. And, you know, he has these big cameras that are from the 19th century Mm -hmm. um, or early 20th century. And and he supplies all the materials and you just, you just live it for you know, that week. And there are other artists there. So you get to collaborate and help each other out. Mm-hmm. And they call it camp 10 type. <laughs> exactly what it is.
0: Okay. Well, so learning this new process, did it do something for how you approach things artistically or is it just, yeah,
1: it did because then I was like, well, what do I use it for? Yeah. You know, that for me, the, form needs to match the material. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, for me, I didn't want it to be arbitrary. I wanted it to engage those questions that sort of the, the photograph itself and in its infancy Mm -hmm. was engaging. Mm -hmm. Um, so of course, like there's like preservation and loss. And, you know, I realized that the, the types of images I was making when I was living in Alabama mm-hmm. were all about documenting things that I was afraid of losing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when I moved to a new place and I didn't know anybody, I didn't really have that same
2: impulse.
0: Right.
1: So I started to become more interested in that moment when the image becomes democratized, mm-hmm. you know, becomes like inexpensive and available to the masses instead of being the territory of only the wealthy mm-hmm. get to have themselves rendered and um, existing beyond their own lifespan and wow. how like Americans would show up to so at the time the photographer would be itinerant mm-hmm. and would travel around from town to town and would pitch a tent and the tent would serve as both the studio and the dark room mm-hmm. and so people would come in and they would perform their identities for the camera. Mm. So, you know, if you're a man, you're typically, you know, dressed in your whatever your trade uniform is. Sometimes you have your tools. If you're a butcher, you've got the saw and the apron. Right. For women, it's more about like the fashion of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, soldiers perform as soldiers. And mm. the, there's a sort of aspirational performance that's happening in front of the camera. And I think that's kind of how we still, Use mm. The photographic image is that we we aren't necessarily showing who we are. We're showing who we want to be and who we want others to think we are.
0: You're saying people don't represent their real lives on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
1: believe it. I'm saying we are always performing a self we'd like to be hmm. in the hopes that maybe it'll stick. Right. Um, and so. So I started making these installations in my studio that would be really involved and really brightly colored. And I would always have like fresh baked cookies and leave my door open. And when people would walk by and become interested, I'd be like, Hey, do you actually want to like come in and perform for my camera? And those started becoming the 10 types. And then I became, I learned of the hidden mother images of the 19th century when they would photograph babies and small children. They would often have the mother hold the baby because there'd be like a several second exposure time and you'd Hmm. you'd need the child to be very still. But instead of it being this, you know, Madonna and child style portrait, or even a portrait of a woman achieving the the feminine ideal for the Victorian era, Hmm. the women would be covered in blankets, hmm. appearing as ghosts. Sometimes it's a hand reaching in from behind a chair, or sometimes she's, her identity is scratched from the plate entirely.
2: Hmm.
1: So I became really interested in, in how this practice seems to be completely up against this idea of like this democratic performance of the self right. um, in the image. And there, you know, really there wasn't any academic writing on it at the time. And Hmm. so I was like, this is my thesis. I have to know what this is. And, you know, very quickly amassed a large collection of Hidden Mother 10 types because, you know, 10 types are still only a few dollars. (laughs) They never they never seem to get expensive. Um, So built this image archive. I started followed this inquiry. That's really fascinating.
0: So. Earlier in your journey as an artist. Uh, You had that moment where you were thinking, what is the value of showing a person in the situation? And so you moved your attention towards learning who people are and then photographing them in an environment that showed who they are. And I'm thinking about that in contrast to your idea that people are constantly performing. And so I wonder um, just what your thoughts are about the value of capturing a true self or what is a true self oh. or what just, what do you think about that?
1: I mean, that one, like a tr- the idea of a true self mm-hmm. um, is tough for me because I don't, you know, I'm a person who tends to believe that anyone can be transformed with enough care, mm-hmm. effort and time. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of a true self like are there things about us that are indelible that Mm. make us us or can we always change Mm. um so i I don't know Mm. about a true self or being locked in as one thing from birth or um but i do think that Certainly in my practice, there are a lot of things that I think should just be allowed to exist without documentation. Hmm. I think the fact of knowing you're being watched and documented changes. Hmm. Um, you know, this is something I think about a lot. Um, <laughs> I've read Guido Board's uh, Spectacle of the Self, hmm. this idea that all lived experience will become representation hmm. at some point in the future. I think we've long surpassed that, hmm. but... Um, that difference between performing and making an image mm. versus just living and being mm. um, it's, its something I think about a lot, but I have no conclusions on it, except to say that in my own life, um, I've chosen to document a thing Mm -hmm. many times like on a vacation i'll give myself the assignment to photograph every stray dog that approaches me you know and that will change that entire experience into one where i'm in pursuit of an image um versus other times when i've decided to just enjoy the way the sun feels on my face and not think about what the image is Mm -hmm. and those are two very like they're just so distinctly different
0: right um Hmm. I guess what is guiding your photography right now.
1: Well, can I back up though, actually, yeah, and let's ask do it. you about what, like, you think about that question mm. of the self?
0: Well, so uh, it's an interesting thing because I deal largely in fiction, uh, but in fiction, I'm trying to represent something true and essential and human. Um, I think that we are born with natural inclinations, predispositions, I would say. And uh, so it is not impossible to change those things, but we have to be very deliberate and consistent. Whereas like other things that are not within that predisposition, we can just pick up and change a lot easier. You know, Um, I was always very quiet and shy. We talked about being introverts before Mm -hmm. we first met. Um, and my father, when I was like 26, he was like, "Alan, when you were a kid, I was so worried about you because you were so quiet, you were so um, shy, and you know, I struggled with shyness, and I just didn't know how it was going to be for you." Then I don't know what the hell happened, you know. And it was just uh, when I was like a teenager, I really just decided I want to talk to girls, so I had to figure out how to, do it, you know, <laughs> right. and so I used to throw myself in social situations. Um, so that was something. That was sort of fundamental to who I was, that I was able to change. But it de- definitely took um, will and consistent practice, you know. Sure. Uh, but I'm still, like, inclined. Well, during the lockdown, for example, I was so good, right? Like, I was so good. Not having to go out, not having to, like, make small talk ever, you know, because for as awkward as zoom it can be, there's not much space for small talk, so to have that cut out of my life, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, same. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the reason I asked that question of you, though, is because you are capturing some version of a person's self and I just wonder, like, what is important to you to capture? You know, like, is it, um, is it important to capture who they are in this moment? Is it important to capture who they want to be in front of the camera in this moment, you know? <sighs>
1: You know, to be honest with you, like Mm. I, I have not picked up a camera Mm. since um, probably
2: 2012. Hmm. Wow.
1: That's not true. I've done it, but not like in a consistent photo based practice way. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, You know, I, I was building these big installations Mm -hmm. to create both a backdrop for, Um, for the image itself and, and then also leaving those as part of the exhibition to create the context for viewing the works. And then it's like that work kind of took on a life of its own. Mm -hmm. And then I, I kind of became a sculptor hmm. and well, my next working was conceptually.
0: Be, oh yeah. My next question is going to be, uh, because we you mentioned interdisciplinary at the beginning. Yeah. So I was going to be like, wait, what's the rest? So let's <laughs> talk about it.
1: Well, so I started making those installations to lure people in to uh, do these performances yeah. that we would negotiate together. And, yeah. then, um, and then those objects seem to be able to have a life on their own without a person inhabiting them.
2: Yeah.
1: So that just started to build on itself. Yeah. Um, a lot of my practice is sort of like repetition of form and amassing things over time. Yeah. And, you know, that could apply to the image archives that I build yeah. or even the sort of soft sculptural um, environments that I make. So, probably a lot of people, MCA people, are most familiar with the like 18 foot pink tubes suspended from the ceiling mm-hmm. that um, create this sort of permeable architecture within a space. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that same idea of transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Then using that material to create a, a sort of context within the space that didn't exist before. Hmm.
0: Well, so moving from uh, such a strong focus on photography and people into um, sculpting and other things. I don't know. What was that like for you? Like
1: if I'm looking for a through line, I think it's absence, hmm. you know, the thing that you photograph, that isn't the thing it's the absence of the thing. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, with the, the installations um, without a person engaging them. It's just a room full of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So and the same thing with a lot of the sculptural work that I do, which will often be like my hand repeated over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. that it's, you know, it's not me, it's a representation of me. It's it's the embodiment of my absence. Um, And so I think I'm often creating these pronounced absences um, with images or with um, with other materials.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so we've kind of talked about this this journey that you've had as an artist. Um, One of the things that we uh, we like to talk about here on this podcast uh, is when you're planning things, sometimes things don't go according to plan. Sometimes things fall short. I guess, first of all, can you think of an example you'd like to share with something? And this is specifically for people who are listening who are afraid of failing, quote unquote, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. And then also, like, so if the first question is, can you think of an example? Second is, how do you deal with that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I fail mostly,
0: hmm.
1: um, you know, part part of like where the ideas come from or what motivates the work is just a sense of curiosity. Mm. Um, and I try not to apply a judgment to that. I try not to say, Oh, that's actually a really dumb question. Why are you doing that? Because they're just so, it's so easy to talk yourself out of doing the thing because often the thing makes no sense. Um, so, you know, play is really important in my studio Mm. and, So a lot of times I'll go in there with that, with like unstructured time Mm -hmm. and just kind of play with my objects and make pairings. And there, you know, it's hard for me to choose a specific failure because it's like probably 90% failure where it's like, no, this doesn't make sense. And then something will happen that where it's like, oh, this is it. Mm -hmm. This is the idea. Like follow this where it takes you. But yeah, (laughs) You know, when I was teaching, when I was learning how to do casting and mold making Mm -hmm. for a solid year, almost everything was a failure, Mm -hmm. you know, material failure. And I just had to persist. Persistence, Mm -hmm. you know, always pays in the studio. So sometimes sometimes it's not easy Our ideas feel bad um, and you just have to show up the next day and try again. I imagine it's similar to being a writer. Right. They say, like, put in your eight hours every day.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And they also say uh, most of writing is rewriting. Yeah. So like inherent to the the practice is that the first version was a failure. and You have to keep rewriting it, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, that was a sort of during the pandemic. I was working on a solo show. And one of the rules that I gave myself was you can only use what you already have. Mm. And I started like going through all my stuff, like, what what do I need to get rid of? What's just standing in the way of the next idea? Mm. And I kind of gathered all these things together and I was ready to donate them. And then I was like, actually,
2: <laughs>
1: I'm going to bring you back in. And yeah. through that, like, time and care and effort, um, I'm going to try to restore some sense of purpose to you. Um, and one of the ways that I did that was by destroying things. Mm. And thinking about brokenness, mm-hmm. not as sort of an end state or a place where you then cast something away. It's like this site of transformation and this beginning point that mm-hmm. just because a thing is broken doesn't mean it can't be repaired. And it doesn't mean you have to take it back to how it was before. Right. It actually opens up this great potential that you wouldn't have realized had it not been broken mm-hmm. to begin with. I don't know if that applies to the question you asked me. No, that was
0: actually helpful because I was um, thinking about um, how I've heard the expression, don't compare your insides with someone else's outsides, right? mm -hmm. So like people uh, seeing me do this interview or seeing me on whatever, wherever they see me, you know, they typically think, oh, like, he definitely doesn't deal with fear, right? And then on your website, you have the cool artist photo I've seen. (laughs) And you look very confident and cool, right? And, And so that's why I think it's important to talk about how we deal with fear. Um, And so some of what you're talking about, like changing how you see brokenness is really interesting. Are there other ways that when you feel like an artistic insecurity arise, how do you cope with it?
1: Well, it always arises when a project is close to being put out into the world. That happens to me too. Yeah. That self doubt is always there and just kind of understanding that it's there and that I just have to power through it is helpful. Yeah. Just knowing that that's a normal part of the practice. Right. Um, You know, I guess back to brokenness, if we want to make a relationship between failure mm-hmm. there, that failure is like the, the most rich place for learning
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and potential. So, you know, of course it's scary. You don't want to fail publicly, mm-hmm. but um, there's no reward without risk. Right. So, um, and I think too, that even like failing publicly there's also a great benefit to showing people your, your vulnerability, mm. um, that typically people are really rooting for us to succeed. Yeah. And so, um, when they see us in that vulnerable state, typically it just draws people closer to you. Mm. So it, it might be a challenge to the ego and it might be hurtful and, um, it might bruise you, but it might also have these unforeseen benefits that yeah. you couldn't have known about.
0: All right, let's switch to the other side of things. Okay. All right, so uh, what is it like, do you have a clear moment in your head where you feel like somebody really connected with your heart in a way that you didn't expect that was, you know, really pleasing to you or surprising or anything like that?
1: Well, I did a project here okay. during the pandemic for the Citizenship and Practice of Society exhibition mm. that ended up being kind of interesting and coming full circle. We invited people to do with each other in person at a pandemic safe distance within a sculpture that we created Arthur Aaron's 36 questions to make any two people fall in love hmm. with the hope of generating intimacy between any two people wow. you know feeling as though the isolation of the pandemic and um just the divisiveness in our culture in general was something that could be overcome with a with like intention and effort
2: mm-hmm.
1: and care and time mm-hmm. <laughs> Things um, and. I got an email from a woman who had tried to participate in the project and the person that she was supposed to meet. We had it set up so that strangers could do the project every second Friday or something. Mm -hmm. And the person who was supposed to meet her stood her up and she was really upset. Mm -hmm. And um, so I got an email, you know, voicing her frustration. And, you know, I said that sounds really hurtful. It was really pretty great that you were willing to participate and be vulnerable with somebody. And if you want, I'll do, I'll do the questions with you. Um, and this was at the end of the project. So we couldn't come to the museum. We ended up going to a park and doing those 36 questions together over the course of like three hours and really kind of bearing ourselves to each other in a way that profoundly impacted me. And, um, Hmm. So it, maybe it's a situation where it actually impacted me more than her hmm. or who knows. But.
0: I think there's just uh, this sort of beautiful thing of whether it's your art itself, and I'm saying you in a general sense, you know, like uh, the art itself or the practice of creating or exhibiting it, um, that it creates this space for people to share their uh, most vulnerable places, you know? Yeah. I hosted this open mic at uh, Ophelia's for about three years before the pandemic hit and uh, maybe eight years before that at the Walnut Room. So I would rap and I would have like a jazz keyboard player and a drummer and they would improv behind me. And then anybody who got on stage to do their songs, my musicians would listen and improv with them, right? And the highlight of hosting that event would be when I met people who came to sign up who are really like awkward and struggling with their confidence. Maybe that couldn't make eye contact, but then they get on stage and this whole like personality comes out, right? And part of making that event happen was I would make, I would at the beginning tell the audience, we are all doing this together. So everybody who comes up, we got to cheer. Like we've been waiting our entire lives to hear from them. I'd be like, we're going to practice it. And now, to, and now somebody faked just so they could practice, you know, like coming up, Donald Duck. And then they would, ah, right. <laughs> and so like, um, just as somebody could come and share these songs they wrote, you know, like in their bedroom or something. Right. And uh, get on stage and then like actually do an amazing performance. You know, those are the times where I'm like, OK, man, I've helped to facilitate and create this environment. You know, like I perform first, I open it up and then to see like these people might not have any other place in their life where they can be that part of themselves, but they have it here on the stage. And it's just such a beautiful and wonderful thing. And then, you know, your story kind of reminded me of yeah. that. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, what you're describing sounds like intimacy, mm-hmm. like having your innermost self seen and validated by another. Yeah. Yeah like you created an environment where that's possible for people where they could be seen and then it's like supported.
0: Right. All right. what else is under the interdisciplinary?
1: Oh, uh, I guess we kind of covered the conceptual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I've been questioning like the role of objects. Mm. Like, am I relying on the objects to do all the work for me? Mm. And like, can can I have a more direct connection? I mean, Like in some ways, I wish I was a musician because Mm. it's just such a direct line to people. Mm. Like, I'm going to stand in front of you, use my voice or my instrument, my vulnerability to just like directly connect. Mm. And so I always have these convoluted ways of generating those connections with people, typically through objects and typically done in my absence. Mm -hmm. So the kind of conceptual work has been an attempt to really get in there a little bit more Mm -hmm. and be more intentional. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of always called back to the objects because I, I think that's just my brain is activated through the hand, Mm -hmm. um, and through touch. And so much of my work is, you know, it does engage touch. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I'd like to get back to the image to the two dimensional, but right now all my ideas are sculptures.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you have an idea of what it would look like if you got back to two D, or was it
1: just? No, know. you know, I feel like I, I'm, I'm ready to be out of my house mm-hmm. and to be in the world, and to so much of my practice had to do with like interacting with strangers. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's at the thrift store, on um, you know, I would ride the bus just to try and like make friends with people. Mm-hmm. At t- you know, so. Um, so I expect my practice to change as, um, as I'm, my world starts to get a little bit bigger again, but I don't know what it'll look like. I'm just Mm -hmm. trying to keep my mind open to what, to what that might be.
0: Okay. All right. So you're hanging out, out in the artistic world and you encounter a young (laughs) Laura What advice do you give?
1: Uh... Don't be afraid of your embarrassing ideas.
0: Hmm.
1: Like usually when you feel that embarrassment, there might be a wound there and you should dive into the wound. Hmm. Um, Hmm. That's where you find truth. That's good
0: advice. I love that (laughs) because I think so much about how much fear has robbed the world of brilliant artistic voices. I know so many talented people that the world may not hear of ever because they're caught in their own cage of fear. You know, And I'm constantly like, come on, man, you got to make it. Come on, we can do this. We can do it together. I will help, you know. And yeah, I just think uh, fear is such a tragic beast that robs the world of beauty. It is. All right. Well, uh, where do you see yourself going next artistically? You did mention getting back to 2D. Do you have some upcoming stuff here?
1: Um, Well, I'm hoping to go to a residency. Mm. Um, later this month. Cool. So, and it'll be out of the country. So I'm excited to um, have a practice of walking and observing yeah. and looking from a different cultural perspective, and yeah, just being outside of my house. Right. Will be.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: will be nice.
0: That sounds exciting. All right. Well, so then, uh, people want to follow your work. Where Where do they go?
1: Um. I guess my website, I will say I'm, yeah, I'm not that great at being, having a digital persona, mm-hmm. but I'm, I am on Instagram and um, you can see my things there too.
0: Okay. Do you want to say your website so to people?
1: Yeah, it's laurashill.com. Um, also, you can find me at my studios website. I share a space with um, many other artists working in Denver. We are called Tank Studios, tankstudios.org.
0: Hey, uh, Laura, I appreciate you taking the moment to talk to me. Same. Thank you to today's guest, Laura Schill. Visit mcadenver.org forward slash podcast to learn more about her work. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe for more and leave a review. It really helps us out. Check out MCA Denver on YouTube and subscribe there too for behind the scenes clips that don't make it in the episode. How Art is Born is hosted by me, R. Alan Brooks. Cheyenne Michaels is our producer and editor. Courtney Law is our executive producer. How Art is Born is a project of the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver.